Let's, uh, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we're grateful. You've been very kind to us and all of humanity over many centuries and your son's death and his burial, his resurrection and his ascension to glory have been the heart of our lives for those centuries, Lord. We'd ask that you would have this generation be a credit to it. In your son's name, amen. We're looking at Philippians 1. Last week, when we were talking out of Psalm 55, I had slopped over into Philippians 2. Uh, some of the section I was, I'm covering this morning. And that put it in my, in my mind. And as I soaked in the tub this morning, I was thinking of various things, scriptural, and I started to chase it down uh, this morning after I was fully dressed, and uh, found myself in Philippians 2 again, 1 and 2. And it's something that um, we mentioned in defining the problem with complaint last week is generally the conceit that complaining voices. Uh, when you pray a prayer, you are essentially complaining, but it only becomes the negative complaint, the sinful complaint, when you get a little above yourself, when a little child starts demanding from mother or father more than little child should be getting or having a right to demand. When we demand of God or our government or other people, we start to make demands in our registering our negative assessment, you become a complainer. So I was pointing to humility as, as, as where the answer sits. It's easy to tell somebody when something's going wrong, don't do that anymore. They'd like to know what is it they are not doing? What is it they have to uh, invest themselves in to um, be good about the situation? And as I was looking, I'm trying to decide where to start. The first few verses, the first seven verses of Philippians are this kind, uh, you know, Paul, you know, the Philippians, it's one of those good churches. Um, it's not like Galatians, oh, you idiots. The Philippians are is one of the nice letters. You go, oh, I'd like to know these people. I'd like to go to this church. Um, and in Philippians 1, He's got all these very fond remembrances of them in the first seven verses. And you get to verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Those are great verses. It, talking about what builds in a body when Christ is central. I think one of the benefits, we're a small church, but... We seem to like each other. I mean, anybody hate each other here? I see that hand. Nobody hates each other. So we're probably in pretty good shape. We probably enjoy each other because we're Christians, because frankly, I wouldn't hang out with some of you. I mean, you're not into what I'm into, except for Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful ground of fellowship. And you start to discover that love, and Paul says, as God is my witness. I want to see you guys again. Tammy and Junior were over last night. 
on the porch and I was joking with her as she was leaving. It was just like old times of sitting on the porch and, you know, I wept. Like a baby. No, I, I don't want anybody telling anyone that I did. I didn't. We like to have those moments, those, those revisiting of fellowship in Christ. We, we like certain things about this religion. If only, if only, I don't know if you ever think this, you look around and say, this is a pretty small church, what am I doing here? If only this were a bigger church. If only we were more dominant in town. If only our ministry was X. If only we could beat out the Methodists. Especially the Methodists. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now that's basically a, one of those not just hey I like you all and hey isn't the Christian life great. The Christian life this is what I want to see in you that love what? G gain in knowledge and discernment so that you can tell what's going on, discern what is excellent, and be pure and be blameless, filled with the fruits. Just be great Christians. This is the kind of thing you'll see on some photo on Facebook, a soft focus, you know, a tree and a meadow. That you be filled with all the love and the discernment and blah, 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 blah. You know the Christianese, you know how to talk like that, right? How to say nothing while talking about pious things. So we all want to be great Christians. I mean, you're here at church, for heaven's sake. You might even go to a few Bible studies. And you know, because you're an evangelical, right? And we evangelicals are about the gospel. That really when it comes down to it, that's what we're really concerned with, is the spread of the gospel. Great Christians, spread of the gospel. And in that, wouldn't it be great if we did that by winning? Because winning, it's American. Everything's about winning. Remember when that, back in the hippie days, there was a game, what was it called? No one won it. The ungame. The un oh, you just wanted to slap people who played that. Oh, no one wins. What are we doing then? Because there's winners and there's losers. Trophies. You know, I'm cheering Elena on in her rowing career because I want her to beat everybody. That our girl wins. And we turn to Christ and we think much the same way because we see this is the good. Look at that life filled with love, knowledge and discernment. Wouldn't it be great if people looked at all souls and didn't just see, someone pointed out that all the cars in front were red cars. Okay, we're not just known for that. And guys with ponytails. That's not what we're known for. That we're filled with all knowledge and discernment. A stream of people, not seven people showing up on time and then a trickle of people coming in till about ten. That's what we do. But wouldn't it be great if there was like people, you know, elbowing each other to get to the good seats and they're not the ones in back with the pads. 
And I know we, I know you use children of the flesh back there. Oh, we have to have our child back here because we might have to take it. It's the pads. So I'll just move those pews and find out if it's the child. Everybody crowded down front. People seated up here, getting folding chairs out so they could sit up and listen to the scriptures taught, sing the praises of God. Wouldn't that be great to be winning, filled with the fruits of righteousness? And Christians start to talk about what they would do. This is a, a dark element because Christians start sounding like they are Islamic jihadists if they start talking about being in charge of the country. Who are they going to put to death? Ever been one of those conversations? Maybe you ladies not, because you're delicately nurtured. But guys, oh well, would you put them to death? Maybe. But I think I would be making the short list of too many people. Who could we arrest? We could arrest bad people. We could insist that people have to go to the right church. Why would we allow the Methodists? And the Presbyterians, especially the Presbyterians. There could be all souls in every town in the nation with all souls approved pastors. I would have to approve them, I realize. It's a, it's a tough job and someone has to do it. And some people would, yes, have to be put to death, Roy. You start, you start thinking that you're thinking about the greatness of the Christian life, stepping into something that is completely opposite of what the greatness of the Christian life stepped into with Paul in Philippians. The greatness of the Christian life, the success of the Christian life, is not measured by the rewards of our greatness. Now, I don't think it's a crime if your church succeeds. I don't, this is not some sort of inveighing against any church larger than uh, 40 people. But you know that Christians do start to, Christians, you say, I don't think Christians would do that. Look, I'm a student of history. I've read what godly, believing, gospel-saved Christians did to other Christians over centuries. And yes, they didn't just kill the Muslims. They killed other Protestants. Because, well, I have power. Why shouldn't I be killing somebody? We're not realizing what Paul is measuring as the Christian life. I want you to know, brethren, verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We think, when we think about the successful Christian ministry in life, we think of the successful Christian ministry in life. In other words, the most people, the most power beating out the competition, even the other competitive ministries. So that, but All Souls, or the big house, is well, the best boarding house for Christians, and the best small boutique church, that's what we are, it's like a boutique church, artisanal church. We serve up Christianity with a nice crusty loaf. 
success, we're feeling it differently than Paul. And he tells the Philippians, I want you to know that what, he's in jail, by the way, in case you didn't know, Philippians is a, he's in prison, so that it has become become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And to most, and most of the brethren have been made confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment. Did you catch how that might not track with American sensibilities? That you be made more confident by your, the guy you like being in jail? And the guy you like being in jail is viewing this as really being there to advance the gospel? And much more, and are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Now I want you to realize that we sometimes think that if we got to be successful, we would be deciding who got arrested. Okay? For being, committing thought crimes against Christianity. Just like the secular humanists in Canada will arrest a Christian... Believe you me, if we were in charge, we'd be talking about who did we need to arrest. Paul's going, hey, it works the other way. It's your imprisonment, not theirs, that Christianity is succeeding in. And then he goes on, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Paul is in prison. Okay? And he's going, I think this is a pretty good deal. This is pretty good. This is good for the kingdom. This is, this is what the Christian life doesn't live in necessarily, but because the Christian life, he prays to be set free from his imprisonment. He hopes and is assured that he'll be set free from his imprisonment. Because um, being not imprisoned is better than being in prison. But that he's not measuring the walk in the Lord, the knowledge and all discernment, love abounding, approving what is excellent, that the, that kind of successful Christian life is measured in the antithesis of what is encount- he's encountering. He is in jail. And it's working out well. Not only is he in jail, which means that the pagans have him under arrest, but there are other Christians in the Christian work who preach Christ from envy and rivalry with Paul. Just like I was saying, we're going to have to arrest the Methodists. Just like we would feel a certain satisfaction if success came our way. You can't deny it. It's there in the front of our mind. If, if every pew one Sunday was full, and it wasn't just because something was going on in town, the people came here. And then the leaders of the church had to decide, are we going to have to have two services, or just going to pipe it into the basement? So if you got here late, you sat in the basement. Two services? Oh my gosh. Be still my beating heart. I hate two, two services. I mean, the idea of preaching the same message twice, man, that second time is so dead. You're trying to remember all the cool things you said as you said them, and you can't. So 
So what are we going to do with our successes? Oh, be satisfying because what if a church you didn't agree with? In a liberal town, let's pick on the liberals. Liberal town. Methodists are kind of liberal. PCUSA is kind of liberal. Let's say people stopped, just weren't going there as much. But they were crowding into all souls to hear the conservative Bible teaching. I would feel it. I'd be impossible to live with. You know, we think of success as setting us up to be the bad guy in this verse. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And when you're thinking of success in your Christian life as being featured this way, you're stepping over into that role of, I am competing with these other guys. But others from goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of partisanship, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. All the way back to the first century, people always say, you know, really the problem with the church today is the denominations. Look, they've always been there. When apostles were standing around with the word of God coming down from heaven to them and they were teaching in the church, people were going, no, I think I'm more right. When we start to think that success puts you in charge, you're not drawing the great Christian life out of the success putting you at a loss in every circumstance. He's under arrest, in jail. Other Christians outside of jail are using the opportunity to point out his inferiority as a minister. To try to lead disciples after themselves. Oh, sure, they're bad men, but they might have been preaching the gospel. Paul thinks they are. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, even if they're faking it, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I don't think Paul is measuring the Christian life the way we do. We look at the success verses that speak in those pious tones about what it is to be growing in grace, and we like to see the success, the the graph that we marked it out with, moving up both in dollars, land holdings, Um, Numbers of people, ministries in the rest of the world. I want you to think that the Christian life isn't that. Because Paul's able to go, I don't even, you know, I'm in jail. Other people are getting their opportunity to have their ministry succeed at my expense. While I'm in jail, I'm being kicked while I'm down. And Paul goes, but Christ is proclaimed, so I'm going to rejoice. And he says in the next verse, yes, and I shall rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death. It's getting worse for Paul in the discussion. I'm in jail. The Christians are kicking me. They might kill me. The, the authorities. He has, he doesn't seem to be measuring life very well. Doesn't he understand that's not good for a ministry to be in jail? He says, no, it's been great for the ministry. It's been great for other people's sense of the ministry. And even those people that are dividing the church and, and turning people against each other, you know, hey, it's not about Paul, it's about Jesus Christ. And Christ is being preached by those bad men. I don't know if, you're, if some of you older people remember Marjo Goitner, who was a young televangelist back in the hippie days, ended up, they made a movie about him, I forget who starred as Marjo, but um, he was a bad man. Um, but he preached the gospel. I used to listen to Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart's a bad man. Still is a bad man, from all reports, if he's still alive. Still being bad if he's alive. But uh, I was amazed how well he preached the gospel. Paul's able to go, Christ is preached. And, you know, I'm expecting to be let out of jail, but whether I'm dead or alive, Christ will be honored. For, for, to, me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He's got everything upside down. I'm going to jail now. That's going to be great for the gospel. The rest of the Christian church kind of hates me. While Christ is preached, and the pagans might kill me, which is the best end. He's not viewing, you know, I might die and I might live. I hope I live. Pray that I live. No, I think dying is best. He's upside down. For to be with Christ is far better. You're under arrest. You've been rejected in rivalry that you are losing you are losing the ministry battle with other people who follow Jesus Christ, who are motivated by baser urges. And the pagans want to kill you and just might. So how do you assess your Christian life now, me bucko? To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let, this is the admonishment here, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're discussing that thing he was working for. I love you guys. And I want to see this, your glove grow in this sort of way that you have the great Christian life and you advance the gospel. That's what I want to see. And then it goes through a series of events that is exactly opposite of how we measure success in this world. And he seems to have almost a... He knows they're bad. It's not like he's, he's a masochist. 
He knows their bad situations. He would prefer not to be under arrest. Even Christ preferred not to be put to death. But they understand the importance of this. There's something important about this quality in Christians. That we live a life worthy of the gospel. That we would stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He's just listed how bad situation is for him and his ministry. He has opponents on every side. Some Christians, some non-Christians. And he says, I want you to be standing firm so that our faith in the gospel brings us to a place where we're not frightened by those who are our enemies. And that lack of fear is an omen. Because what did we think? We thought two services streaming video to the basement, um, maybe a, a series of books, because I'd like to write books, carried by Thomas Nelson. What else, what else do I want, Roy? Power. All those things. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great for the ministry? Wouldn't that be good for the good things we're trying to say? What's the omen here? Paul's in jail. Paul's been rejected. Paul might die. I want you, Christians in Philippi, to be standing firm in one spirit in this, worthy of this, and not frightened by this. This is a clear omen to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He just pointed to this circumstance as an omen against it should be ominous to the world. How is this ominous to the world? We're going, we're scratching our heads going, Christianity's losing, Paul. Remember, this is Christianity in the first century, before the fall of Jerusalem, before Christianity really takes hold in any sort of notable way. There's a few churches around the Mediterranean. We're talking of hundreds of people, maybe thousands when you get to Jerusalem background noise in Roman sensibilities. Small. And your head guy's in jail. And a lot of people think he shouldn't even be the head guy. This is an omen of, to them of their destruction and an omen of your salvation, both of them from God. Because, you say, well, you know, Paul was a martyr, and we like to reverence the martyrs, and yes, he led a martyr's life, and, and that's for the martyrs, but we're going to use the martyrs as the leverage to our world domination. What does he say next? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, oh dang it, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict which you saw and now here to be mine. Okay. This is not going to be every. We live in North Idaho. 
It's July 10th. It's 58 degrees outside. You are dressed comfortably, fashionably. I was telling Leslie the other day, we have an unusually pretty church. We shouldn't have this many pretty people for the numbers. You should be, more of you should be plain to homely. But we're a pretty church. We're well established. We dress well. We live in a nice part of the country. It's not like Phoenix at 120 degrees. It's 58. What am I getting at? I don't know. It's an amazing life that we have that we're not under persecution. But you can't say that martyrs, the special, the saints, the people who got, you know, tied to the stake in England and, and killed for the gospel. Yeah, those to be admired people. But it's been granted to a lot of Christians that they not only believe, but they also suffer. We're not trying to encourage suffering. We're trying to say that something is being measured differently. And somehow in that, somehow the Christian life in that is ominous. It's, and if you want your salvation to be evident, remember, it said, it's a clear omen of your salvation from God. When we live in an affluent society, and nothing's going wrong with your life, Looking at non-believers, I've talked to a number of believers about, well, how, how come he can't go to, he seems like such a nice guy. Well, life's good. They can at least pretend to be well-adjusted. Something in the life Paul's describing is ominous to the unbeliever of their destruction. And ominous to the unbeliever of our salvation and that they are both God-sourced. So, what is the, what, what's, the, what's the omen? What was this encouragement back here to love with knowledge and all discernment, to prove what is excellent and pure and blameless in the day of Christ, fruit of righteousness? What, what's that look like? What's it, what are we selling here? What's the omen? So, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, what we're looking for then In this, because he comes back to this incentive of love, that your love abound more and more. He comes back to that and says, This is what the encouragement of the teachers of the faith should be trying to produce in you that an incentive of love, affection, sympathy, same mindedness, same love, being a full accord, one mind. And boy, those of us who have opinions like a verse like that. Because I have opinions. I have opinions where you didn't know there were opportunities for an opinion. So I'd be happy to force them on you, make you believe them, not let you join the church unless you signed off on them, kick you out of the church, because remember, it's who I arrest and who I punish, and that's all about 
the bad aspect of power. Is it, is it whether or not you agree? You have opinions. Some of you are sitting there going, yeah, Evan, I have opinions too, so shut up. Well, how are you going about, at least I have a pulpit and a microphone. I want to, you know, I'm working at making you guys agree with me. You have an opinion that's different. How are you trying to get to this one-mindedness? Maybe it's not that. Let's just assume that that whole process of trying to force every Christian to think the same stuff is not the one-mindedness we're dealing with. One of the things I noticed as we went through this, I went through this passage this morning, is all these things were described differently in Paul. What does he say back in verse 13? My imprisonment is for Christ. That's about his arrest. My imprisonment is for Christ. People working against his ministry, other Christians, rivalry, envy. What does he say? Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. And then he's got death staring him in the face, and he goes, I get to be with Christ. There's something that has Paul looking at Jesus versus something else. I don't mean to suggest anything untoward on your part. But when you th- sit around shooting the breeze with your Christian friends around a campfire, would you die for Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. What if this? Would you go to jail? Would you? Who do we think about the most? Think about us. Our life. Our freedom. Our success. We don't think about Christ proclaimed. It's for Christ. I get to be with Christ. That's how in his death life decision death is better because he wasn't measuring what Paul got. Well he did. I mean he gets to be with Christ. But it's not Paul's advancement. It's the glory of Christ. But that was just sort of one aspect of it. The other aspect was what Jesus Christ is trying to produce in you by love and knowledge and discernment and approving what is excellent. What Jesus Christ is trying to do, what St. Paul is trying to do, is to bring you to a singular conclusion, all of you. All of you should have no trouble agreeing with this. It's not my view about eschatology. It's not your view about baptism. It's not the one view about the Trinity versus another view about the Trinity. Be of the same mind, full accord, one mind. Then he kind of lets you know what he's talking about. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. In other words... The, the mindset a Christian is supposed to have that liberates you from all those nasty sensations of success or what it brings is having drummed selfishness and conceit out of your life and taken on humility. Counting others the better than yourself. You are not getting close to being the uh, sociopath which has no empathy at all for others. You're about other people. 
That is the mind. He say, why not, how do you know? Well, he says, have the same mind, full accord, one mind, then he tells you that. Then he tells it to you again in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay? So, what's the instruction? Have one mind. What's the one mind? Don't be conceited. Be humble. Look out for other people. Simply put. Don't just look out for yourself. And then he gets back to it, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Have one mind. This is the one mind. Have that mind. He says, not only do you, should you have that mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Because remember, it brought you through all those things. The arrest, the rejection, the rivalry, the death was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brings you freedom from conceit. I don't know if you ever think about humility. I like C.S. Lewis's, you've heard me say this before, definition of humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Because Jesus Christ was humble. And Jesus Christ was God. Can you imagine what a mind game that had to be? You're kind of a five foot seven Jew. First century. Romans are in charge. You're aware that you're God. And you're not crazy. You're aware you are God. And you can do stuff. It's like just waking up one morning. How many of you could be trusted if you had a superpower? None of us. Because what would we be doing? Oh, I'll just be flying down to the co-op, because I'm a hippie superhero. I'm going to go down to the co-op, pick up some coffee. Or I'm just going to run really fast down there. Or I can raise the dead, walk on water. I'd be doing it at every church picnic. Oh, I'll get that. Walk across the water, pull the ball out. Which is awful. Jesus Christ had all that. Remember I said, you're probably still going, it's been about, I don't know, 20 minutes since I said, you're a very attractive church. And you're probably not even thinking about what I said since because you've just been sitting there in dreamland. He thinks we're attractive. Well, you are an attractive church. And you're a bright church. It's a college town. You're a thinking church. You, you talk about the things of God. God bless you. Smart. Middle class. Good looking. And if you take my views, you can even be correct. Well, Jesus was, I don't know how good looking he was. He probably wasn't that good looking. But really smart, you know, God. Um, powerful, going to save the world, greatest person in history. History. Yeah, he knows all that. Is he humble? He's humble. Because it's not about whether or not you are wonderful. That's what we think we're measuring, and so we always want to be recognized, win the situation as the wonderful. Be recognized as the correct. Not lose the debate with my detractors. Not end up in jail, but have them end up in jail. We think we have to demonstrate and push and yell and scream that we're the best. His mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. 
He wasn't saying he wasn't equal with God. He wasn't grasping at being equal with God. And you may be the prettiest parishioner at All Souls Christian Church. Just don't grasp it. Thank God for it. Move on. Emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That he didn't want to do. But he did it. As God, for people who didn't thank him, even when he was alive, those Samaritan lepers, weren't there telling you? We don't even turn around and thank the living God walking the planet. We're messed up. But that he was what we're being designed into. What is ominous to the world. Is when you take the ratio between self and other in your life. You are a self and then there is other. Not you. There's a ratio of your love and grace regarding self and other. Where is it piled up? Do you spend all your time thinking about you? Do you take a lot of selfies? That might be a modern measure. Take a lot of selfies. Checking every makeup circumstance. Or how heroic you had this adventure or that adventure. For the guys, it's GoPro cameras. For the girls, it's phones, you know, but... Anything wrong with taking a selfie? Morally? No. What's the ratio of your love and grace when you hold it up to self and other? Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfishness and conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. It's telling you that the mind you have to have to be successful in the Christian life is one where it doesn't matter if they throw your sorry rear end into jail. It doesn't matter if your ministry doesn't succeed. What matters is, were you faithful to Christ and did you take on the humility of Christ as the mind that you should have as a believer with other believers? Do you encourage other believers to gain the mind of humility? We look at most things in terms of merit. It's legitimate to look at a lot of things in terms of merit. You don't watch, is it uh, Venus Williams, Serena Williams, got another victory at, was it Wimbledon? She's good. You don't want to go, oh, we're not giving it to you, we're giving it to some kid who just started to learn to play in Iowa. Because it's not merit. It's not points. Some things are points. You give it to the person who got the most points. But our life in the world, that's how the world has to run. Dollars are exchanged, victories are had, armies are defeated, and Christians are alien. As Christians living the life of love, they're alien to that urge. When the Lord says to the disciples, the Gentiles have rulers over them and they're called benefactors. But it shall not be so among you. Anyone who would be first among you, let him be a servant of all. We're called to humility. That's the one mind 
that is important. No Christian gets a, a pass. Your love is to lead you to powering that love by others being loved. Not you not being loved. It's a, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. But you know that when you're selecting you over others, there's a conceit. There's a selfishness. And if you can't stand to be part of a ministry that isn't successful, respected, if you can't stand it to be thought that you would be put to death, you'd rather be thinking about who you would put to death, something's wrong with your definition of the faith. What that omen is, what, what this humility does in a person, when Paul says the, the, the gospel has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, which was the official, you know, secret service unit that the Caesars had come up with. And they were seeing something in Paul, that it was, he was there for Christ. And it didn't matter to him that he was in prison or not in prison, dead or alive, because Christ was important. There is a peace that exists in that, because calamity in your life isn't dictating to you whether you're tranquil or not. And you're so desperate to not have calamity in your life you feel you've got to win and get in charge and be, in, be the boss about all things. So that's what you need to remember, that the omen of their destruction, your victory, your salvation from God is being able to walk through the worst of circumstances, but because the one mind Christians are enjoined to have means that the standard rewards of victory are not there for you. The reward you have is that Christ is actually in charge of the universe. It doesn't matter what happens here. He will judge the universe. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end, the victory of Christ in the next world, in the next life, at the end of all of this, is fixed. This victory is gained by the saints and the Christ humbling themselves and not trying to fight out their own gain. Their own gain in ministry, their own gain in the world. Take a look at that one-mindedness. If we had, for all the people that insist the Christian church agree with each other, if they would just say, okay, we'll start with humility, just if they started there, that everybody in the room has to agree to be humble. Well, one thing would be certain, you wouldn't have the fights. So let's start there. Even if you don't agree with me that this is the one mind, I think it pretty clearly is, having a mind of giving yourself to others in love and grace. If you start there, it solves a lot of the other calamities. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. It's a beautiful day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the believers in it. 
we'd ask you that you would benefit us in the way that we live so that we are an omen of what you and your son and your salvation can do in people. Thank you for changing us. In your son's name, amen.